This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. I was going to record some, like, tiny little licks just for the podcast, uh, yeah. for your commercials. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Some muddy. Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast, a show where we bring you actionable tips and science on how to better connect socially, boost your emotional intelligence, and navigate social dynamics. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. Welcome back to our month on decision-making. Last week, we had on Professor Dan Ariely with us. We talked about his research on social and market norms and how we can easily get into trouble when we mistakenly choose the wrong norm. We also talked to him about common errors of judgment in dating and romantic relationships because it turns out there's actually a lot of scientific research around it. Today, we have Eric Weinstein with us. We talk about the intellectual dark web and what we can learn from their approach to have a more constructive conversation with people we disagree with. We discussed how to break through disinformation in the information age. We talked about social norms in the workplace, and then also the idea of changing from a caterpillar to a butterfly. You're going to want to stick around for that one. Johnny and I have been looking forward to this one, so let's dive right in. Eric Weinstein, thank you for coming on The Art of Charm. Hey, thanks for having me. Obviously, for us, we're excited to have you, and we've encountered a lot of your guest visits on other podcasts. Now you're starting a podcast, but for our audience who's not familiar with your work, what would you describe yourself as? How do you share with the world who you are? I'm a math guy, and I have improbably found myself talking to more people than I probably ever thought I would be talking to. Um, How do you feel about that? I have uh, very mixed feelings. <laughs> I really appreciate privacy. I appreciate being able to lead a, an authentic life uh, with a smaller circle of friends. And I guess I am astounded that there aren't more people saying more interesting things to my way of thinking. And so I think a small number of us have ended up speaking at scale, just because it's become very difficult to talk about reality in a world that is increasingly focused on safety. So would you say you've been drawn kicking and screaming into podcasting? That would be my producer who would say that to you. <laughs> that would be his view. Yeah. I think that I probably put up more resistance to doing a podcast than any other podcaster in history. Well, I think there has to be some, re some relief in knowing that in the world, there is a large demand for this conversation and these conversations that you've been having and, uh, and your friends. And we can now see that the world isn't in the Howard Stern king of all media realm of fart jokes and, and, the, and the rest of it, where there is now real conversations being had about important things where people want 
to get at the truth rather than just having a bunch of stuff spat at them and trying to make sense of it. I'm going to stand up for fart jokes for just one second. <laughs> um, I actually think that the Howard Stern program was about a lot more than that. Yeah. It was about, sure. I mean, it was about racial partnership where and male-female partnership. It was about the difficulty of dealing with the you know, suppressed sexual desires. And, you know, Howard Stern, I think, was always really trying to be Ulysses lashed to the mast, lead me into temptation, but keep me from partaking in it. I think that it was about the acceptance of weirdness where he had these weird people who he was simultaneously making fun of and elevating. So I think it was about so many more bizarre things than what it was claiming to be about, which was just, you know, sort of constant stupidity and titillation. And I think, you know, very often you, you kind of find that things that have large followings like that are really not what they appear to be on the surface. But maybe I'm getting that wrong. And with your new show, The Portal, what is your goal with the podcast? In part, I'm trying to embolden myself to talk about what I really care about, which is transcendence. I think that a lot of people, I've sort of been sub-famous a few times for a few different things, for my stance on immigration theory, for saying that the world was in a dangerous financial situation before the crash when people weren't listening. I think I started doing these edge essays where I talked about the danger of kayfabe and professional wrestling invading all aspects of life, which I think sort of was before the 2016 election. We can talk more <laughs> about that at some point. And then the, the intellectual dark web. And so all of these different periods of my life, as, as I started to gain notoriety or some, some awareness that people would have in the world, I think I always kind of shrunk back from it because I don't like the idea of being microanalyzed on every aspect of, of, of your public existence. Do you guys read your YouTube comments? Oh, no. we stopped. Okay. <laughs> we, we get enough listening to Joe and Sam talk yeah, about yeah, yeah. that cesspool. Well, then, and that worries me too, is that then you become disconnected from the feedback. Right. Right. And so, yeah. So I think that all of these things are great issues to deal with. And I think that social terror is, is definitely one of the things that we should be talking about for your audience as they try to figure out how to embolden themselves, what they should be talking about, why it's so difficult to talk about reality in public. Uh, how do you draw a boundary with your personal life, which I don't think is anybody's business. You're allowed to be a public figure and have a personal life and we have to figure out how that's done. So yeah, these are great questions and great, great topics. But the lasting import of the portal will probably be whether I can compel myself to share the things that I've done that I've avoided sharing for many years and to have my own power base where people who followed the show and have an idea, they'll watch me stumble, fall. My guess is that most episodes will fall short of the mark because it's difficult to find the portal. That's part of the challenge and the fun of it. But if you can break through to something really different, uh, I intend to release some of my own work that I've kind of kept back through the portal as if it was, let's say, a journal in an academic context. And can we, in fact, use this new podcasting ecosystem to do things that's never been used to do before? There was certainly a long period of you playing with this idea of, of doing the show. Yeah. And was there a, was there a moment? Or was it several that you were just like, oh, that's it, I'm pulling the trigger, I'm doing it? 
No, I'm, I, I think pulling triggers, let me rephrase it. A friend of mine once said to me a very wise thing, which was, you have a very difficult time seeing around corners and going forward. That in general, you always want to be able to know what the decision tree looks like. And if you sort of fuzz it out and say, there be dragons <laughs> on some branches of the decision tree, I've always worried so much about the risk that I can't quantify that I've hesitated to do these things. And so I try to map it out a little bit as if I'm doing decision science. And very often you can't do that. And there's no way around this. I think it's very important for people who are used to doing, let's say, imperative computer programming, where you're directing the computer to do everything, to know that there are parts of your life that you cannot get to look anything like this. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Being the canary in the coal mine, so to speak, for so many of these things that you saw and talked about before others were seeing it, what was that decision process like to stick your neck out, so to speak, and say, hey, guys, we have a problem here? Those were actually weirdly easier. In other words, let, let's take you know, one of the first ones, which was immigration. So what gave me the confidence to talk about the need to restrict immigration was the fact that my own private life was so clearly dominated by xenophilia. I mean, I'm just fascinated by other cultures, languages, religions, and travel that when I, I don't know, when I turned 16, 17, I started to see the world. I was, I was like a kid in a candy store. And so when I found out how immigration was being used, which was, you know, to transfer wealth between different groups of Americans, I didn't have the same fears about maybe I'm a xenophobe because I was putting way too much time into trying to learn Turkish, let's say, you know, <laughs> As a result, I thought that was comparatively easy because all that would happen would be that wrong and stupid people would call me names 
And yeah, that would be really embarrassing and horrible, but the people that I cared most about would know the truth. And, you know, it turned out to be a little bit more painful as I started to find out that a lot of very smart people uh, were so afraid of being called xenophobes that they would bury their own knowledge and they'd say, well, you know, secretly, I agree with you, of course, but, you know, I have to say this other thing because otherwise people will think this wrong thing about me. So that was, that was a, a big introduction, but that was, I was on very solid ground because it, for example, in that area, I had found secret studies on how to lower wages using immigration. And so I would just hold up these studies and people would have to say, well, let's change the topic. And then when it came to the financial crisis, that was a different one where I happened to have one of the earlier papers on mortgage-backed securities that was submitted in 2001. And it was very clear that the world of finance had gone crazy. We just didn't know, the smart people didn't know when the crash was coming. Nobody, nobody really knew how to time it. And so I was too many years early. My friend Nassim Taleb, you know, counseled me. I, I gave up after about three years beating this uh, <laughs> drum. And he said, you know, you're, you're, you're getting out of the trade too early. The best is yet to come. And I didn't know that it was going to be 2007 or 2008, or I'd be doing this interview with you guys on my private island. But um, that was another instance where I felt everybody had gone crazy. And so all you needed was the strength not to be crazy in public, that you, eventually you'd be proven right. And I think, you know, on those two, I feel pretty good. And then with like the professional wrestling thing, <laughs> I was convinced that the that the WWE was way ahead in the, in the field of human psychology. It, it knows things that most psychology departments don't know. And so it was only a matter of time before somebody who was well-versed in the suspension of disbelief, in the case of Donald Trump, he was you know, a good friend of the McMahon family. Mm -hmm. And he you know, appeared in professional wrestling. Of course he knew how human beings thought. This is what like, you know, Scott Adams, who I often disagree with, was cued into this different layer of psychological thinking. So magicians performers, wrestlers, all these folks know that human brains don't work anything like the way the uh, University of Chicago economists think that, that these brains work. So in all of those cases, I felt fairly confident. Now I'm doing something where I feel a little bit less confident because I, th I think it's now an emergency that we don't realize that all of this weird political stuff that we're seeing that is somehow not affecting normal life too much. Like the cities still run, the cash mm -hmm. machines still work. You can still get your plumbing fixed. And yet our politics has gone completely out of control. You know, if, if China or Russia were to present <laughs> a real threat to us militarily, I really don't know what we would do with the, with the clown show that we have. Not, not just the administration, but yeah. the entire dysfunctional well system. Our universities are dysfunctional. They can't tell what truth uh, and fiction are, how they differ. Our newspapers are so <laughs> caught up in propaganda that I, I feel like I'm in, you know, 1940s uh, Soviet era thinking why I'm being propagandized. I have no idea. Do you think it's the media has always been that way and it's just now exposed? How old are you, young man? I'm 45. Okay. The media has always been much more off than it is now. Oh, sorry. The media has always been much more off than people have thought it was. And it is much more visibly off to more people now because we have the ability to comment back. In the old days, we would write a letter to right. the New York Times and it would appear on page 
37 in, you know, some, some corner. Now we can shout from the rooftops and a lot of us are being listened to. So there's that effect. But no, it used to be, it wasn't like this. And I, and I say that as somebody who in the 1980s would have been talking to you about the propaganda of the New York Times. So I, sure. I've tracked that <laughs> for a good long time. No, it's gotten quite a bit crazier because we are at the end of something. And with this democratization of information and this war of ideas, it feels like... And democratization of dis and misinformation. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. It, it feels like we are unfortunately walking around in our own bubbles and very few people are willing to in, interact even with someone who's outside of their bubble. And obviously the work that you do with Peter Thiel, your first guest, understanding that, hey, agreeing with someone should not be where we start conversation. How can we break outside of this disinformation that we're all feeling, you know, and I know I, I reach out to Johnny in moments where I'm like, I think I'm in a bubble, but a lot of people are even unaware of the bubble. Give me an example of a bubble you think you're in. Well, perfect example is I do consume left-leaning media, right? Johnny doesn't consume left-leaning media. So oftentimes we'll meet in the middle of like, how did you reach that worldview? And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I listened to the Daily from the New York Times and I happened to encounter a Washington Post article. And he's like, well, hey, this is what I'm encountering on my side. And this is the way that that my side is viewing it. And oftentimes it, that challenge helps both of us reach a stronger conclusion, what but we're avoiding you, it. What media are you consuming? If I, I would say that he's more of the New York Times and, and those areas where I spent a lot of my time on YouTube. And of course, the IDW is where I had found some well, at least to me, some sanity where right. everything else was going absolutely haywire. And so when, when you're, you just feel isolated and you know intuitively that you're hearing something that is wrong, but, but, but it's being told to you wrong from so many different directions where you start to think you're crazy. Then you have to start looking out. Is there anyone that thinks that thinks like me? And of course, upon looking for that, I, I have, right. And you would be one of those people and, and many others who was like, oh, a voice of sanity in, in what's going on. And there's no clear answers there, but at least we can kind of gather some semblance of what is going on. Can I make a recommendation? Please. Go back to the New York Times. You're ready. What about it? Well, you have to actually learn how to consume news from a propaganda source. Now, the New York Times mostly fact checks. Mm -hmm. That's not where the problem is. So it's, I find it's pretty good if they are willing to state something unequivocally. They know when they're lying. They know when they're propagandizing. And so you have to be able to learn, like, about the to be sure paragraph. So seven paragraphs in, there's a paragraph <laughs> that begins to be sure. And that paragraph has most of the things that they don't want to admit to. So always, and it doesn't always start with to be sure, you know, that's like in a world, you know, it, it's, a, it's a ritualized thing. So look for the to be sure paragraph that they have had to put in in order to make sure that the piece is technically balanced. And then, you know, um, some other tricks are, I think there's a, a site called news diffs, maybe newsdiffs.org, how the story changes online. Uh, recorded several differences, you know, as this, as the day progresses. It's like the telephone tree. Right. Well, like a perfect example for us was the incident that happened on the mall 
at the, in Washington where there was a, a MAGA group of teenagers who mm-hmm. were interacting with the uh, Native Americans and the drums. Right. And you saw that from the left-leaning media, they picked up this scoop around the MAGA teens accosted the Native American. And it right. kind of fit neatly into the left-leaning perspective of like, see, these MAGA uh, lovers are out of control. Right. right. And it just fit neatly into their archetype. And then I talked to Johnny and Johnny's like, well, that's actually not what I've heard at all. It was actually the opposite. And then, you know, as the story twisted and turned and more sources got involved, it, it actually round up somewhere in the middle <laughs> where you could from either side view the other person as being wrong. And it was actually in a gray area. But where I'm consuming my information didn't show the gray area. It showed the black and white viewpoint that clearly these kids riled up in their hats, you know, went after someone who was just peacefully demonstrating. And I feel like this is just one of many examples where we've had these conversations back and forth and it's now made me think, oh, let me step outside of my bubble, which is traditional media, and let me just try to seek out a little bit more of the truth. And it's and it almost seems like it is ramping up to once a month. Now it's weekly. Now it's several different stories that are, are it just seems that are popping up. And we both said, like, we're trying to cut back on the news because it's driving both of us crazy. Well, it's driving all of us crazy. It's ruining our relationships. <laughs> well, yeah. And I want my reality yeah. back. And I'm going to take my reality back because who are these people? They're unelected. We can't question them. We can't understand what's going on. We know who they're hiring. Sarah Jong at the New York Times. I mean, okay, it's like we're going to write a confession that we're actually a, an activist, you know, political uh, source. Okay, however... Here's, here's what I would recommend to your, to your listeners. Think about every news organization as having a guiding narrative, okay? So once you've got a guiding narrative, you have to ask, what happens when a narrative-aligned story, story comes through that organization? So my claim is that all of the major outlets, the sense-making organs, if you will, in my jargon, None of them are so weak that they can't catch a fly ball, right? If somebody hits a pop-up fly, they've got it if it's narrative aligned. So Breitbart is going to do fine if there's some story about somebody faking a hate crime. They're going to cover that. Mm -hmm. Okay. On the other hand, if there is an actual hate crime, that's going to line up much more with the New York Times or Vox. So now you have this weird thing, which is that no one, there does not appear to be one single organ who can faithfully report a counter-narrative story. And there is always a counter-narrative story that will eventually come in. Something that you don't want to have to consider because it fouls up what your general view of the world is. If you believe, for example, that immigration is a pure positive, it's a free lunch, that, you know, Noah Smith told me straight up that he believes that it's a free lunch. It's the rarest of all things with no downside. Well, okay, sooner or later, some immigrant is going to do something horrendous. And that means that there's a problem for anybody who stated, no, it's a free lunch. It's the miraculous thing that never happens. On the other hand, if you believe that immigrants are the, are the source of you know, America's weakness, I guarantee you somebody's going to found an amazing pharmaceutical company that's going to cure all sorts of diseases And that wouldn't have been done otherwise. Okay. So now the question is, why is no organ able to report both of these phenomena? And that has to do with the fact that 
we are living in a narrative driven era. And so, you know, that I'm trying to be open. I have narrative stories and I have counter narrative stories that run against what it is that I'm trying to say. It's much more fun to report the stories that perfectly align with my narrative. But I think that the big answer is you have to consume eclectically. You have to think about it as like your ear. Your ear is, has different hairs for different frequencies. <laughs> and if some of those hairs in your organ of cordy go out, you won't hear things on that frequency. So my advice to you is start consuming some crazier stuff that, that is exactly counter narrative to what you're consuming. And my advice to you is totally different, which is go back to consuming the propaganda that you've identified and recognize that there's a lot of true things that the New York times does really well, but you're going to have to do both. You're going to have to aggregate across this because there is no sense making organ, not one that I've found that can report a counter narrative story faithfully. Now, with all of this, and this is where, you know, I get into it with Johnny, <laughs> we are in an attention economy yep. and big data has monetized our attention better than anyone. A lot of us don't even realize that it's happening. And now they're relying on algorithms to feed us what we need to stay attentive on their sites. Right. And what you're finding is that conspiracy and the darker parts of the web actually are easily uncovered if you hop on, let's say, YouTube. Yeah. So YouTube doesn't have an editorial board that's like, hey, let's stick left leaning. They have an algorithm underneath it that's feeding you what's going to keep you on the site. So they're advertising. Well, but they have algorithms in. that are increasingly political. It is now they're pushing the more mainstream legacy stuff from what I'm at least in well, my they're trying, mind. right? But it's a complicated story, but there isn't a way in which the politics are being made algorithmic. So it's they're starting down that pathway. Mm-hmm. So now we've had to add another level of awareness, right? <laughs> Whereas before we kind of knew that, okay, the editorial board of the Wall Street Journal has their narrative yeah. and the editorial board of the New York Times has their narrative. And hopefully you could read both and figure it out for yourself. But now we're introduced to a Facebook feed that serves us up what's going to keep us on Facebook. Yeah. And a lot of it is to your narrative. Like they've figured out your narrative better than you, as we saw with Cambridge Analytica. Like they understand us with the data we've given them. So they know what Johnny's narrative is and what's going to get him to keep tuning in. Well, they don't actually know it necessarily. I mean, in other words, they might have a neural net and they don't really know exactly how it works. They just know that the input-output characteristics improve when you let the neural net decide what he sees next. So do you have any worries about that and it's our ability to handle the disinformation? Well, let's talk about the art <laughs> of charm. Because originally I poured this water into a glass tumbler. And then the producer said, hey, would you mind if we used Art of Charm mugs? So we are doing the same thing that YouTube and the New York Times is doing. The Art of Charm. <laughs> That's okay. Because we can talk about it. Meta, we can go meta about it. I'm here in part to make people aware of my podcast, mm -hmm. The Portal, right? In so doing, we have to recognize, and the reason I'm calling this to attention is, is that there's a robot level at which no amount of my doing the hammy thing about holding the mug up actually matters. The amygdala just says, oh, art of charm, art of charm. Okay. Can you become a, signi a significantly more critical consumer of information, audio, video? By the way, for those of you who are just listening on the podcast, I realized that people couldn't see that I was holding up a mug that said Art of Charm. I should have annotated that. <laughs> Go to our YouTube channel. Yes. You'll see the video exactly. of holding up a mug. So 
what I'm trying to say is, is that I'm not terribly frightened of obvious things and semi-obvious things that I can see and I can understand. Let me tell you what terrifies me. I get scared when Google says, don't be evil. <laughs> I get scared when Facebook says, we're just about connecting people and making the world a richer oh, yeah. place. That's the sound of terror. Because I don't believe it for a second. I mean, first of all, you have an obligation to your shareholders. And if mm -hmm. that's all it was that you're, you know, you tell, tell me why don't be evil is good for your shareholders. Because you've got contradictory directives. Right. And, and profitability does not rely on your audience being well-informed. In fact, you could argue that the professional wrestling analogy is exactly that. We've realized that clickbait and what drives our attention oftentimes is fake news, misinformation, whatever you want to call it. Exactly. But what I'm trying to get at is stop pretending that you're this defenseless person who's mm -hmm. going to be programmed or that your neighbor is defenseless. We can all get metacognitive and watch our robotic selves. Like I will sit there and just stay on YouTube for 45 <laughs> minutes watching, you know, I have like 20 species that I'm fascinated by. And so, you know, one more pangolin video, that's <laughs> going to be awesome. I'm, I'm convinced of it. All right. But I can also watch myself and say, hey, notice that you've just spent 12 minutes not really thinking and just behaving as a robot. And how have you increased that self-awareness? Well, it helps to be to have a significant other that says, are you still on YouTube? <laughs> okay. Um, so find a partner who's willing to call you out. Well, or uh, our friend Tristan Harris and yeah. his time well spent movement has been pushing for these things. They, you know, guess what? You, you just spent eight hours of your day on YouTube. I think that those feedback loops are important. That said, recognize that in the attention economy, we are going to be seduced. We are going to be manipulated. In part, this is normal. So don't freak out just because, let's see, assume that I had a Porsche. I was given a Porsche as a swag, you know, for promoting Porsche on my podcast. I would benefit from the fact that lots of people have been brainwashed into thinking that Porsche means cool. Now, that might positively benefit my life. Um, you know, why am I wearing a jacket? in LA where it's like 90 degree weather. You're right. In part, it has to do with the fact that I want to appear to be more substantial as a, as a voice, given that I'm going to talk about some dangerous stuff. So I want to be considered to, to look the part of somebody who can be more trusted as an adult. I'm going to try to prune the number of swear words that I use. So there is a way in which our surface level indicia are either telling us something accurate or sort of making a best argument for ourselves. Eventually people are going to figure it out. You know, if you've just rented a Porsche for three days in, in order, to, and then you're pretending like you own the thing and, and you actually don't have a degree and you're, you're saying that, you know, you, you were a professor somewhere, who knows those things will, will be sorted out. But the problem is, is that there's a general layer of distortion that we haven't figured out yet. Our, our primitive selves have no experience with YouTube and Google and Facebook and Twitter and all of these things. Mm -hmm. So we're building that and we're starting to learn how we've been manipulated and we're starting, we didn't have the word clickbait. Well, I, I to me, the, the, and from when I'm talking to people outside of 
the the audience who's listening to the podcast. I mean, there is still, I have a large number of friends who are still getting turned on to it now. This show has been running for 12 years and there's new people being turned on to, to getting the internet and being exposed to all these things as well on a daily basis. And when I talk to my friends who are not uh, involved in podcasting or some of these conversations, their experience on YouTube is incredibly different than mine. And their experience with new media is incredibly different than mine. And I found a lot of them who were, who are just absorbing everything that's going on without questioning any of it. And it's, and it's though we are, I would think that we are a very small section of the public who, who is, and who sees that there is something up where everyone else is just kind of taking it. You'd think that. And then like more or less all I've done is been a podcast guest and it's pretty much been limited to four or five podcasts. Okay. It's a bit strange that I can go anywhere in the country and say, Hey, I'm, I'm having a coffee at such and such a place. <laughs> and suddenly I've got 20 new friends because people are tuning into this. And so you're being recognized in airports. And I always have, you know, people say, you know, Eric Weinstein, and I look at them and my first thought is always, did I go to high school with you? <laughs> Have we talked before? I don't realize that people are consuming this because nobody smart, once they've discovered that the mainstream media is the Truman Show, wants to stay on the Truman Show. And so we're all trying to figure out how to get off of it and to create new institutions. I mean, you, know, you guys in some sense are a weird small institution. You know, I, I teach my kids this thing that if you stand... If you rather sit down at a computer on one side of the screen, it's like a half silvered mirror. And the people who program that computer are living on the other side of that. And they might be able to control your webcam or, or your mic. They, they can figure out what you should do next, what choices to present you with to coerce you. And so why do we have this, this weird situation in which old computers, everybody knew that there was like a command line. Right. That there was some way to get into the innards of the computer and actually program it. Whereas the modern computer just sits there serving up apps and you have to go looking for the command line. You have to go looking to understand what this object actually is. That's the super dangerous thing. So the, the message that I want to get out is that that's true for all of these things. News diffs, for example, was a way of watching how the New York Times editorial board changed a story over the course of a day as they saw how it was behaving. So that was a way of getting through the half silvered mirror. You want to do that with everything in your life. For example, at some point I said, I realize I don't know how movies are constructed intellectually. So somebody gave me this recommendation, look at the book, save the cat. And it said a movie is basically 40 beats. I thought that the unit of a movie was the scene, but apparently the beat is the way to, 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 to look at it. And it's, you know, they named particular beats like the bad guys close in or all hope is lost. Okay, well, once somebody shows you that, you start to understand the, voc the maker vocabulary. And that was the, that was the issue with kayfabe, which is the system of lies that professional wrestling had used. I wanted to know, well, when people deceive other people, what is the, what is the lingo? How do, you how do you talk about layered deception? And I, I chose either espionage or professional wrestling. I couldn't find any spooks who wanted to talk to me. So I went a lot easier to get professional wrestlers. <laughs> yeah. It's also, but it's also more fun, right? It, anything that is resident in the minds of the population from pop culture 
is going to have much more power than something dry and technical. And that's why, for example, my analysis of Kung Fu Panda took off. It wasn't that the fact that it was about a movie that so many people had seen. And that's why the fart jokes at Howard Stern matters a lot to me. All of this great stuff is happening everywhere. What you want to try to figure out is, okay. Layer beneath. Yeah. How do you get through that first layer that locks you out? Obviously, part of the draw of these conversations that are being had on the podcasts and and in new media in the IDW sphere is disagreement. And, you know, I find that the shows that I go back and listen to over and over again, there are two opposing viewpoints. And even at the end of the show, there's not a conclusion where they shake hands and agree. They agree that they value the other person's opinion, but they may not come to any conclusion. But I find those to be the most enlightening. Unfortunately, even for a lot of our listeners, myself included, I struggle to, you know, find those conversations and pursue those conversations. And obviously the work that you do involves a lot of those disagreements and looking at the world through a different lens. How do you approach those conversations where you know someone disagrees with you? Oh, I love that question. I guess the way I look at it is, is that it's meaningful disagreements, but they have to be built on meaningful agreements. The thing that drives me nuts, and I think I said this on uh, Ben Shapiro's Sunday special, we have to talk about bad diversity. Bad diversity is when you can't agree on fundamentals. So just picture two roommates who have a disagreement about which way the toilet tissue should be rolled. And all they do is keep switching it back and forth, back and forth. They never have a productive conversation. This is the sole thing that occupies both of their brains. That's a lot of what we have at the moment. This supposed, well, it's, it's, it's a rich world and all these different ideas and they're coming together and people are hashing it out. It bores the hell out of me. What's really interesting is when two people have an agreement as to what a conversation is and how to self-referee an argument, and then they build lots of agreement on top of that, finally getting to a disagreement. That's what I find fascinating. Watching two people disagree about whether color should be spelled with a U is not interesting to me. I don't care. I just, I I can't speak to how little I care about that level of diversity. So what I'm listening to is the conversations where people can self-referee as if you were, you know, a pickup football game or Mm -hmm. soccer game in a park, you're not going to hire a ref. And then if there's one guy who's always cheating and never owning, you know, that they, they did the wrong thing or they stepped out of bounds or whatever, that guy can't be asked back. And so we have to take all the people who can't participate in a pickup game of soccer or football or baseball or ultimate Frisbee, and we have to say, yeah, you're not part of this. You're just, you're excluded. And we have to get really comfortable with excluding people who destroy conversation. And are there metrics that you're looking for when you agree to, say, come on a show like ours or come on another sphere so that you can go in knowing that, okay, at a base level of agreement around what we all consider to be the truth, not creating slippery slopes and gotcha moments for you, which the internet cares a lot about these days. You know, what are you looking for as, okay, I know that I can intellectually trust this person, even if I know that we're going to disagree. No, I don't. I mean, I'm taking a risk. One of the reasons, (laughs) this is like a very strange, funny thing, but the way I got to know you guys was that I walked (laughs) past that window 
And I, I just thought I was watching two guys podcast. I was trying to figure out whether, yeah. whether to go with this podcast outfit. And it was a breaking of the fourth wall where you're like, Holy cow, Eric Weinstein. And I thought, yikes, that was a, that was an unscripted moment. I, I don't know which show that ended up in. Hopefully you edited it out, but um, it's actually going to go in this show. It's a little Easter egg at the end. Oh, yeah. is that right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, so in general, I find that the number of gotcha artists in the world is very small and the gotcha artists seem to be everywhere. So that's a, that's a kind of a puzzle. And that's why like mostly everything is working except the super important stuff isn't. It's because the gotcha artists are very focused on leverage. And they will take pay cuts. They will, they will do everything they can to in, insinuate themselves inside of the power structure to play the gotcha games, usually with some backing of somebody who doesn't want to be seen. And reputational destruction is the single most important growth in, industry at the moment because the thing that's still functioning is individuals. More or less, the art of charm is just you two guys, mm -hmm. right? And that's where magic happens with tiny groups because tiny groups are the only things that aren't being regulated at such an incredible level at the moment. You guys probably, do you have an HR department? <laughs> Not big enough for an HR department. Okay. So, you know, when, when you have staff meetings, uh, do you have to schedule them weeks in advance and do you, do you take minutes? No. So that's the thing is, is that right now institutions and organizations are pioneering some crazy social experience engineering experiment. And there's some great things about that. I do, I do think that the world will in part get better, but there's so many negative aspects to it that it does kill off the vitality of higher conversation. And so one of the reasons that I'm sort of more interested in doing podcasts like yours is that you're, you, you've been at this a long time before it was cool. I I'm getting in when it's like peak madness um, <laughs> and that it, you're small. And, you know, I watched some of your stuff and it seemed like what you were trying to do is to help people who are, are very, very smart and very intelligent integrate some techniques that would help them work at the same high level that they do analytically in other aspects of their life. I think that's a very noble endeavor. So I support what you guys are trying. Well, to do. certainly with, with where technology is at. The, the small social things that we had to do on a daily basis are gone. I mean, you don't even have to leave your house anymore. You hit a few buttons on your phone and the food shows up. You're not dealing with cashiers anymore. Or even people get into an Uber and they see it as a, as a robot driver. They don't even speak to the Uber driver. And it is how many days in a row can you go without really having a connecting moment with another human being and not think that your social skills are atrophying? What's called a tech coma. You, you just <laughs> fall into a tech coma, right? Yeah. And if you've ever programmed, do you guys program? Thankfully, no. no. Okay. I didn't program until my 40s, I think. And I found it was terrifying um, because I can just go for 18 hours straight staring at a screen and I'm just locked on target. Yeah. And when I come out, I'm not a nice person to deal with. I speak in these totally clipped, precise sentences. I'm in completely not reading cues, uh, social cues. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm just trying to get to truth, to effectiveness. I want things to work off the computer like they did on the computer. Of course. And so I, I consider this a context switching penalty that 
if you have to go back and forth, you have to realize that your brain is running in very different modes between being a consumer of technology, maybe even its prisoner, being a producer of technology, where you actually have to make sure that everything makes sense, compiles, has been unit tested, whatever, and being a, an ordinary human being. And I certainly have not gotten this worked out. Most of the people I know who are very technical don't have it worked out. Well, for us and the work we've been doing for the last 12 years, and this is why we started the company, we were seeing this in, in 2006, 2007. It's, it's certainly not gotten any better, and it's only continued to get worse, and we're at a place where I don't see it changing at any time soon. And for everyone that ends up at our classes or our programs or listening to the show, some actually think that they may be broken. And it's like, well, you're not broken. It's the technology that is at hand. Who thinks they're broken? What's that? Who, who, give me an example of somebody who thinks they're broken. Well, for example, one of our clients who has, I just spoke to on the phone, has gone on a series of first dates. He's internally felt the first dates have gone great. He's picked up on signals of interest. And the date has ended with her saying, you know, I think it's better. We're just friends. And then they don't really talk. Now, this is a guy who, very technical, he's now leading a team of coders. So okay. he became proficient in computers, exactly that same context of like, oh, I plug this in the computer, I get this result. Going on a first date, he's read some things online, he's heard a couple things on our show, he's consumed a bunch of information, a lot of it misinformation, tries some things, doesn't get the readout that he's looking for. And you get that enough times, you start to go, well, system seems to work for everyone else. All my friends are getting dates. Oh, some of my friends are actually married. I'm broken. Something's wrong with me. And for us, it's been to, to elevate all this that it is so common that no, you're not broken. It's that you're having success uh, running your brain and with a certain hat on that allows you to succeed and excel. But that doesn't translate when you go to uh, social engagements. Uh, socialization is an art form. It's self-expression. So there is no one and zero. It's not, it's never going to be perfect. It's not going to work or not work. It is how expression works and the connectedness. And so that's where we're in lies the, 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 the problem, because if you wear that hat, yeah, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 hours a week, and you do well there, it becomes very difficult to take that hat off when you have to fight and make mistakes and, and understand why it's not working so clearly in this other realm, right? This other context, it's not working other areas of your life. It has worked for you. Well, can we play with this and just riff? I mean, yeah, I, I'm yes. already prepared on this, but um, I think that's a, a noble branch of the decision tree to say, maybe the idea is that this isn't like the rest of your life. It's not all zeros and ones. It's more about emotion, intangible things, all that. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that that's not the right way to look at it and to say, okay, maybe it is a technical problem and maybe it has a technical solution. So for example, you guys are familiar with the term sapiosexual? Mm -hmm. Okay. Maybe you guys should have a sapiosexual dating service because one of the weird things that I found is that every single math department and physics department of any repute has groupies. Mm -hmm. There are people who just want to date guys who are as nerdy, zero and one, et cetera, because it's an, it's an arbitrage opportunity. These guys are generally up for commitment. They are, you know that the brain is in great working order if they're, if they're working mm -hmm. at a high level. And 
they're also a fixer upper project. Oh, you know, here's something that needs somebody else's touch. And so Johnny's I, I, been in many bands. Well, here's just, here's where human think. psychology comes into play. All right. Now, I, I love this because what you just said, and basically we could say that there's a groupie for everybody, and I love that idea. However, <laughs> this is what I wanted to get into. However, in order for people to be able to salute your flag, you're going to have to first hoist it. So people are going to need to see it. You have to put yourself out there to find the groupie for you. And that's what makes this difficult because if you don't have very very many dates then you put all your eggs in the one basket you have to open yourself up to option and abundance and putting yourself out there that can slowly eat away with you at you if you're not experienced enough in that realm and that's what we're we're dealing with of of trying to help the for everyone who's listening to cultivate high value mindsets that will allow them to to take the battering that comes with socialization so that you don't take everything so personally as like reading youtube comments and how well those well, things okay. can do something well the, and the science of attraction says the opposite johnny as a as someone who's been in multiple bands he doesn't want to end up with a groupie you don't want the easily attained option you don't want the one who clearly is going to be all over him, chasing his I attention hope. and affection. Look, look, look. So most of us, when it comes to attracting yeah. someone, we want the challenge. We don't want someone who likes us just because we check a few boxes. First of all, I have a different view of the concept of a groupie from authors like Cleo Odzer and <laughs> Pamela DuBarnes. I love Pamela. She's yeah. Great. So I don't, I'm not talking about it in, in terms of an unequal relationship. Very mm -hmm. often the person who I would be labeling the groupie in this situation is going to end up in control, right? Because relationships are often about codependence. Now, the psychological community has told us that codependence is a bad thing, but the idea of personal incompleteness makes sense. And what I'm talking about is people who share a sense of what they're missing and what they want. And so complementarity. So let's move away from the word groupie because it's gotten a connotation in this Sorry. case that I'm not, I'm not interested in. If you're talking about people who know that they want somebody who is technical, like very often you have a great relationship between somebody who's an incredibly intuitive person, an emotional person, and that person provides the spice, the life, the spontaneity, and the other person might do the regimented stuff, Right. Start with people who are in the market for what it is that you are. Right. And Johnny's point is you have to declare that you're in the market. Yeah. And that's often the most difficult step. And a lot of times people don't have a, a certainly in today's day and age, don't have the length of time to go out to bars and fraternize and to work on these things. They want to get it handled in a relatively uh, short time period. And that's what we've put together and what we've been doing for the last 12 years. And certainly, and talking about those efforts and how we do that on the show so that people can do that. But the, the idea there was that we are running into this, this. Problem. And the, the experience component is what we've designed the week to be. The goal of the week is 200 conversations with strangers. Okay. For a lot of our clients, they look back on their entire lives and they go, I don't know that I've actually had 200 <laughs> conversations with absolute strangers. So I've had 200 conversations, but typically a hundred of those have been with people that I know really well. And then I've put myself out there a little bit, haven't got the great results that I'm after. So I happily walled myself off, opened a dating app, 
send some messages where fear of rejection isn't really that big of a deal because I swipe and there's another match for me. And now they've set themselves up with a lack of experience to say, well, I can't go after what I want romantically. I can't go after what I want socially in terms of building the friends that I'm after. Huh? This is super interesting. I mean, I, we are positive about people on the spectrum. I, I think of it as like a life advantage to be on the spectrum. Oh, <laughs> oh I, I absolutely agree yeah. that it is an advantage. And for a lot of us, we probably are walking around not even realizing mm-hmm. that there are degrees to said spectrum that we're talking about. Right. And I think a lot of the people that we gravitate towards as, you know, being incredibly intellectual, as being great at their job, tend to lie somewhere on the spectrum more often than not. And, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing incredibly talented, smart individuals come to us and say, hey, I don't have time to get the social skills handled. Can you guys help me work on this? And through cognitive behavioral therapy, we're looking at, okay, what are your beliefs and mindsets? And now let's take some actions that realign those so you can create the new beliefs that allow you to, as Johnny said, put your flag out there and find the mathematician groupie. Well, the the first thing that I want to ask is, have you partitioned your your, uh, people? Let's, before we get to soft skills and like management, because that's a comparable issue with respect to dating and romance, let's break your audience apart into, into two groups. Those who are interested in commitment to raising children and those who are not. So everybody who is in the, I'm committed to raising children with somebody else is in much better shape than everyone who is interested in figuring out how to have fun dating because you have something super valuable to offer. If you have a job, if you have a, high functioning brain and you're interested in meeting somebody to have kids with recognize that you are the fabled unicorn that many people are seeking. (laughs) Right. And you should be happy, pour yourself a glass of wine, enjoy your life because you're in much better shape. Now the question of how can I have a lot of fun meeting a bunch of, a bunch of people and getting into light romantic relationships It's a very different question. Yeah. And I I certainly think this is where and why we've had the staying power over the last 12 years. There are other people who focus solely on the fun, dating, flirting, go after and and chase as many options as possible. And don't get me wrong, in our 20s, we enjoyed those moments too. But the core mission of us, it goes beyond the simple dating. It's it's, it's true connectedness. And everything that we've looked at, scientifically speaking, in terms of happiness, mental health, well-being, even physical health, is through connectedness. And we're saying if we have a preponderance in our audience of people who are feeling disconnected, isolated, but in big cities, in a job that's incredibly rewarding for them and mentally challenging for them, how are they still feeling disconnected when technology is saying, oh, well, like we said, Facebook, we're more connected than ever. I have more <laughs> Facebook friends, I have more Instagram followers. Yeah. Well, let me ask you guys a question. I've always wondered about this market that I thought was underserved, which is people looking to settle down and raise kids as opposed to the game and mm-hmm. pick up artistry and all this kind of stuff. And one of the things that, I, that moved me was somebody's describing what makes a great skateboarder. And I said, a great skateboarder is somebody who knows how to fall well. Certainly. Right? And I thought, huh, is that really right? And then I started to look at some videos of people who nailed a trick. And then you see like a hundred instances of them falling down a flight of stairs. 
And it's absolutely disturbing. It's just really hard <laughs> I to watch. watch it either. Yeah. Okay. Well, wouldn't it be great if we could practice crashing and burning in a bar at a wedding? Absolutely. Where, where you hire. That's what we hire, do for a week. Well, <laughs> do you guys That's hire somebody? What we, do. we take them out here in LA. They stay with us a few blocks away right. from here. And we have video exercises yeah. in our living room with improvisational actresses yeah, okay. who can handle anything you throw at them, mm -hmm. can role play any scenario where we actually do control the environment and we film you and we look at your nonverbal communication and your verbal okay. communication. This is awesome. And for most of us, especially those who would, you could argue are on the spectrum, there's a dissonance between the two. Then they take everything they learn from those drills and we go out and apply it. And, and the crashing and burning is a huge part of that. Mm -hmm. Learning how to fall and get back up right. so that you can talk to someone else is a huge part of the exercise. And one, one of the parts about the experience that why the guys enjoy these field nights is that they have never been so free to make mistakes before without social consequences because they're not at home. But there are with other guys who are working on this as well and they're having a good time and they're doing this in a positive way in a positive manner. So failure feels less scary because they're in a group setting, seeing other people fail and pick themselves back up. And all of right. a sudden they're able to handle it because at home, maybe in the past when they have put themselves out and things didn't go well, their friends pointed and laughed or gave them a hard time for putting themselves out there. And that's, that holds you back. Well, then the, the friends that you have are certainly not serving you well in this social setting. They're actually, hindering you from things that you want to bring into your life that needs to be reset as well. And then to what AJ was saying about the video work is that there is a narrative playing in their minds about why things are not working. And then when we go through cognitive behavioral therapy and we start asking questions and then they start to look at their answers are like, well, that's kind of illogical. Yes, it is illogical. What is more logical? And then we start looking at those answers and they can, now reconfigure a belief structure, a narrative that's now supports them working and getting better at this rather than one that is holding them back. That's great. You know, I, I used to watch old episodes of blind date uh, <laughs> and tragic show. It's, it's so much going but on. There. So much social dynamics. So much tons, you got the just, cameras just, just, and, tons. Uh, just think of it as a corpus. It's a data yeah. set. And one of my favorite ones was it. a guy they had twice, he, had, he was on twice. And the first time he did a series of moves that worked with somebody, and then you see him repeat the exact yeah. series of moves with somebody else. And nope. she's just saying, why do you think this is fun? <laughs> and what I thought about it that was great was, is that it was a controlled experiment that showed you that, if you do not adapt to every single situation as a different experience, mm -hmm. you will find that you, you cannot make sense of the why. I know this works because it happened before and it was, it was productive. With respect to like soft social skills, I find it very interesting to pose problems that allow technical people to understand why you need a calculus, why you may need a calculus for soft <laughs> skills and soft decisions. I pose people this question to show the problem. I say, how would you tell me that I have mildly bad breath? And a lot of people like who like me can, can end up on the Aspie sort of um, spectrum 
will say things to me like, I just tell you that you have mildly bad breath. <laughs> and I say, well, but do you realize that the social convention says that if you cross that chasm to tell me I have mildly bad breath, what you really must have meant, according to my inference, is that my breath is so horrendous that you would actually break a social norm to tell me. And then we get into this weird thing where people, they always find the same things like, uh, can I offer you a stick of gum? No, I don't chew gum. Right. You know, I find that when I eat onions for lunch, it can be a little <laughs> oppressive. Oh, well, then maybe you shouldn't do it. Everything's wink, wink, right. nudge, but it's a different language. No, nobody's ever solved this problem to my satisfaction. So if one of you out there in, uh, in tech land <laughs> wants to take that on, I think you'll find that the problem is we have to compound deceptions in order to get to the truth. And I always use this example of your eyeball is distorted and your, your spectacles are also distorted, but it is the compounding those two distortions that leads to something undistorted. And so very often the soft skill toolkit, if you will, is built around a need to distort, to soften the truth in order that the truth may actually go through because there's another second thing on the other side, which is what, what will be the distorting inference and learning to speak to what is the precursor, which when it is misprocessed results in what I wish to communicate suddenly opens up a lot of technical people's eyes. They say, Oh, are you saying, you're saying that that person is always going to misinterpret this stimulus. And so what I need to do is to figure out which stimulus that misinterpreter will correct, will interpret into what I meant to say, bingo, got it. And I think turning it into a technical puzzle is not the worst thing in the world. The problem, of course, is that it's, it's a hard road. It's not an easy one. Well, much like you starting off in podcasting, you've been a guest on other shows, I'm sure, in your research and trying to figure out who to help support you in this mission, you gained some knowledge around podcasting. You talked to all your friends who are podcasters, then you hit record. Right having never recorded your own show. Right. So you came with all this knowledge right. around, oh, this is what my successful podcasting friends do. This is just what I got to do. Then you hit record with a lack of experience and it's a different ball game. And you know that over time, Are hopefully you being by- critical of me? <laughs> only, only slightly. <laughs> is that to, right? To, to prove a point around the, the gaining of experience, right? A lot of us come to the table with all this knowledge and we're in the information age. It's easy on any phone to dial up whatever information you need but we are walking around with a lack of knowledge. And when it comes for you, especially someone who's paid to make decisions, who's known for making astute decisions, what do you rely on and how do you sort through the lack of experience to maybe make some of these heavier decisions? Well, I overanalyze everything. In general, when people say you're overthinking it, I turn around to them and I say, I think you're underthinking it. Uh, I'm extremely <laughs> disagreeable and this causes a lot of problems. So you have to know that I have opportunity cost problems by not acting as I'm still deliberating. Very often I can't get enough information to make the decision. So I probably have a lot of the same characteristics that your audience has. One thing I've been developing is a somewhat thicker skin. So for example, so since we're talking about my podcast, <laughs> I released an interview with Werner Herzog. Yes in which I believe there's some period where I am on my phone and in my comments, oh, I find it was, I, 
went went to the comments first to see what everyone had to say about it. Yeah, because I was trying to figure out which to right. listen to first. And it was why you on your phone. <laughs> yeah. But if, if your fly is unzipped, you're going to get a oh, thousand yeah. comments yeah. that you think you might want to zip up your fly. Up to go to the, <laughs> and I think like you're using this screen here mm-hmm. for you audio people. I'm pointing at an iPad or, or a tablet of some kind. And you, you have it supported in a case. And probably you're using it for notes. Maybe you made some notes and you're Mm -hmm. mostly making eye contact. But when I'm talking to him, you're thinking, oh, here's an opportunity. I'm going to scroll. You've got two guys so that you could share duties. Maybe I didn't realize you had one. I hadn't seen that. So both of these guys have tablets out. But because I did it with one guy on my phone and I didn't understand (laughs) how it worked, this is what we would have called in finance tuition from the market. So learn that phrase. If you do things in the outside world, you will get tuition from the market and the market will be nastier than it has to be for you to learn the lesson. Now, if I can bring in a music reference, the guy who, who really has changed my mind recently about this stuff is Mike Einziger, who's the lead guitarist of the band Incubus. Mm. And Mike, one of the sweetest guys you'd ever meet, gave me some advice that I wish the whole world would hear. And he said, it's really important not to keep perfecting a song. And I said, what? And he said, well, he said, every time you let a song loose in the world, you hear back from musicians, producers, your audience about what went wrong with that song. And if you know how to process that information, that is incredible data to, to write your next song. And he said, the problem is, is that people have these songs in their drawers that get better and better and better, but they never mm-hmm. actually get on with their, their next project after that because these things are actually still improving. So I think it's really important to understand that if you are so afraid of failure and so afraid of being imperfect that you don't let things out, what you're really doing is cheating yourself out of a very painful tuition from whatever market it is that you would be dealing with. It could be the market for, for love. It could be the market for you know, better positions. It could be the market for great artistry. And so it's important to expose yourself to whatever is going to come back. And you have the right to bargain with your audience, which is like, you know, somebody's like, oh my God, you got Werner Herzog. You were the rudest person in history. <laughs> well, no, I'm not the rudest person in history. I was not aware that I might've been causing offense Thank you for bringing it to my attention, but you've also overplayed your hand. And so you're entitled to denature and attenuate the nastiness that comes with the constructive feedback as to what you've done wrong. And we appreciate you for coming on and having this conversation with us and our audience. And obviously we know that's what you're doing at the portal. So can you give our audience a place to check out more? Uh, Obviously, the portal is a great spot to start your new podcast on the cast network. I appreciate that. Look for the portal at Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen to podcasts. We also have a YouTube channel. You should be able to find and on Twitter where I probably have my largest following. I'm Eric R Weinstein. And who are you super excited to have on the portal next? Honestly, I would love to have Eric Lewis, Priya Natarajan. I would really like to have some mathematicians that you guys have never heard of. I would love to have Eric Lander or Ed Boyden, George Church. It it, it is also the case that I want to do celebrity interviews, Mm -hmm. but 
what I really want to do is to take a bunch of people that your audience is probably only dimly familiar with, if at all, and show people all the amazing things that are happening that aren't really getting any play and any attention at all to find the, the, the spaces that we don't know how to break through to. Awesome. Thank right you on. so much for Guys, really us. appreciate it. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you. So as you know, we have a weekly challenge. This week's challenge we have for you. Obviously, we all have that one person in our social circle that we disagree with on one thing or another. Sometimes that leads us to avoiding that topic as good as we can. And sometimes we even avoid the person altogether just to be on the safe side. What we would love for you to do this week is to get into a discussion with them about exactly that topic. Don't try to convince them that you're right and they're wrong, but instead only aim to get a better understanding of where the other person is coming from. As you know, Johnny and I disagree from time to time, yes, but always find those conversations enlightening. So let us know. We're always excited to hear from you all. You can send us your thoughts by going to theartofcharm.com slash questions, or you can email us questions at theartofcharm.com. Just no more Taco Bell emails, please. Find us on social media at The Art of Charm. I've always played electric. My dad played electric. So, Eric, we're very excited to have you on. What do you guys want to talk about? So, we do monthly themes uh, in, around self-development. The show centers around social skills, advanced social skills. But the theme for this month that we're putting you in is decision-making. All right. You're going to make some cognitive decisions. Yes. I'm not doing this. <laughs> 